podcast this today. We have Simon Chamber with us. I'm very happy to introduce him in a second. Um, if you like what you see today, follow us at becomecgpro.com if you're interested in any of the other things we're doing, classes, Unreal, all of that kind of stuff. Follow us on our website. Always feel free to subscribe and like the YouTube channel. Um, so yeah, it gives me great pleasure today. Welcome, Simon. Simon, great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Good to be here. Simon is a pro prolific technologist in the world of particularly photogrammetry and, and computer graphics. Um, Simon's done some amazing work, probably some of you have seen in building, um, reconstructing pieces of the real world, um, going back to some amazing examples of Tutankhamun's tomb and some other really great examples of capturing and reproducing digital twins of, of significant places of interest in the world, but also um, inventing and innovating in space and creating some incredible tools through the, the extraction of um, PBR materials and photogrammetry processing and probably thousands of other things as well that I don't know about. But anyway, there's a quick intro. Simon, welcome. Thank you. Um, please feel free to, to fill in any of the blanks. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I guess uh, what we're known for Febbit in the past was the work that we did with uh, uh, the, the digital twins we did with uh, photogrammetry in regards to Queen Nefertari. Uh, uh, sorry, Nefertari's tomb, not Nefertiti, Nefertari, uh, and Tutankhamun. Uh, we did a number of other locations in the past as well, um, like Mana VR, which was a beach scene here in New Zealand. Uh, have demoed quite a bit over the years. Uh, New Zealand Parliament was one as well, which was quite interesting. Uh, there's a lot of projects we have done that we, we can't brag too much about ourselves, but you've probably seen it one way or another in regards to certain digital twin works. <clears throat> um, yeah, so that was quite some years ago, uh, 2018, but I don't consider the last two years to be particularly proactive in the regards of uh, digital twins. It's been a little bit difficult getting off the island. So uh, we've been using that time for the last two years to essentially look at some of the in-house tools that we've been using uh, and finding ways to get them out to the public one way or another. Uh, Deep PBR was one of those tools that uh, we're still pushing hard to get out. It does work. It has been working for some years, but uh, we did struggle with front-end uh, integration and, you know, kind of basic upstart territory, scalability, things like that. Um, but we are developing some new stuff now where we do think we can piggyback that, that technology back onto. So, yeah. Amazing. I'm looking forward to talking about it. I did, I did try it out myself yeah. uh, a little while ago. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to ask people at the beginning of these um, just a, a little bit about how how you kind of got into all of this, uh, going, going back to maybe some early inspirations, what, what led you to find this um, as a career? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, it's one I don't usually talk about too much uh, these days. That's why I did the TEDx talk for. <laughs> because it's a little, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult story. Um, but I guess long, best way to put it would be uh, you, you get given lemons, you make lemonade. Um, so about eight, nine years ago, um, went for a bit of a life experience, I guess, uh, which made me realize you don't really know what you've lost until it's gone. 
And so from there, I essentially uh, actually had no background in this. Uh, maybe back in the 80s, um, when I was mucking around on my Amiga 500, uh, late 89, you know, 91, um, playing with some software back then. But apart from that, I've been basically a musician for the last 20 years, uh, playing drums, singing in a band, all that kind of jazz. And uh, we went through this experience, and we basically lost our home due to, uh, due to a fire. Um, that's the short story. Um, and from there, we, uh, I kind of got a bit obsessive about it. I wanted to essentially find a way to get back uh, to that time and place uh, for both me and my daughter. Uh, and I'd been watching um, some years earlier a, a good TED talk about a piece of software called Photosum. Um, which was a kind of a precursor to the photogrammetry way back in 2008 and uh, kind of caught my attention. I went, well, look, I've got all these old family photographs. Is it possible to recreate the house using this rather incomplete data set? And from there, I kind of just sat in my room for two and a half years and started tinkering with uh, early stage, well, early, I guess you'd say early mainstream photogrammetry. It's been around for like years and years and years. It's been around since like technically the 1900s, you know, or the maths for it anyway. So um, got really impassioned about it and just packed away for a few years with very little background. And so I guess my unique situation was I, I wasn't classically trained and therefore I didn't really realize what I was trying to do was kind of um, a bit out, out of the box. Um, and yeah, uh, 2014, 2015, I put out some demos. Um, oh, maybe 2015, 2016, I've lost track of time to be honest, mate uh and that caught the eye of certain parties and and you know then i began the world tour for a few years before we all went into um two years of being on <laughs> yeah yeah amazing right yeah really really interesting start to that and unusual um mm. i think is is uh probably the best way of saying it um yeah, yeah really cool to hear about it though thanks for for uh telling us and sharing us because I, th I think there's often significant moments in your life that really do provide the, the greatest inspiration. Sometimes they're, they're not as pleasant, but they yeah, yeah. kick you into gear and get you really passionate about something <clears throat> one one way or the other. So it's yeah, really interesting to hear about that. Right. I'm just going to get close to this mic. Can you guys hear me okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. sounds great. All right, sweet. Yeah, I'm going to buy a headset soon. The thing is, we're in a very large lounge and i'm on a talking on a very large tv so i'm a good you know i'm a good <laughs> good distance away all right it's all good we can hear you cool cool so in, uh, in the, the beginning when you were getting into photogrammetry um were you creating your own tools to create the photogrammetry using a combination of things um uh, yeah i mean oh um the initial problem with photogrammetry was baking. Um, and so where everyone was dealing with like, let's say 30, 40 million points of data, uh, with, you know, with their point cloud, um, we knew that was not sufficient. So our first early demos were genuinely, you know, we were hitting the billion mark uh, in regards to texel density way back in 2017, 2016. So the first demo that we put out, which was essentially uh mana vr um that um so yeah 2016 we're kind of hitting about a billion points in regards to texel density so just to give you an idea that's you know i'd say maybe 20 uh, 10 28k textures and 
so we hadn't really seen much other parties doing that. And that's what textual, but you know, also normal maps and all that stuff. So we had to, the first tool we had to make was essentially a way to do memory and data management for baking. And because basically with computers, you know, the most you could really bake at any given time was about 700 million points. Uh, and so we, we had to build our own internal tool to do that. Um, so that would be one kind of scenario where we had something that didn't exist prior. Um, obviously, since then, Capturing Reality has their own internal baking tool now. And so that whole conundrum really isn't an issue anymore. But we're quite proud to say that, was, to the best of our knowledge, we were doing that at least three and a half years ahead of other parties doing that. Um, and so we had that technological advantage. Uh, other techniques that we were using in the past was super sampling and in-painting, uh, which we are still very much using now, but we're integrating into this much more larger tool. And so the ability to scan environments and essentially lasso around things you don't want. And so we did that extensively with Nefertari and Tutankhamun, where there was a lot of stuff in that scene that really was quite annoying. You had clerks, you had, you know, essentially no smoking signs, all these other kind of little weird features, halogen lighting, um, and all these modern day features that you didn't really want in the experience. And so we worked out processes to eliminate that manually, not automatically, which we're doing now. Now we're doing automatic touch up, but this whole process of, you know, being able to even deal with that large scale amount of data, you know, with Nefertari, we're talking about 88K textures, you know, essentially um, running for Nefertari. So Nefertari was, the low resolution version was 6.4 billion points. The high resolution version was 24 billion points. And so how do you deal with 24 billion points of data? Um, and so we worked out techniques for that about, you know, yeah, we did that about three years ago. That was before anyone else was doing any level of baking, even close, you know, the, the most we're seeing out of other, other people's parties was 700 million. Occasionally they would break up their mesh into multiple parts manually and do it separately that way. But that is just such a horrendous way of how to manage data. And so we were far more like, how do we just do this, you know, without having to spend months and months and months on a single scene. And so Nefertari, six weeks ago, we're putting that out to, you know, we're, two guys were able to achieve that within six weeks. So that was pretty cool. Um, so in painting, and that became, called, yep, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say that that became a, an experience that people could, could download. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, this is a bit close to home for you guys, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to elaborate too much on it, but our internal version is a hell of a lot better than the version that um, Curiosity Stream have released. We've tried our best to, we've offered them our version for free, um, but they're very difficult to work with, quite frankly. So um, <laughs> they, don't even like, they don't even want us mentioning it, that it's our work. So it's kind of hilarious. Um, yeah, but everyone knows who did it, so we don't really care anymore. We had to go out, well, like we, when, they, when we did the press release in 2018, we had to manually go out to every major paper and publication and have them do a, a what do you call it, uh, when you insert a correction. Yeah, so um, quite a difficult experience for our first experience, our first major project, but um, it's, yeah, it still stands up to test of time. I mean, Nefertari, even their version, their version, and I had to emphasize our version is so much better. Um, even their version is still considered one of the most best looking VR experiences of a digital twin. Um, where you can really see the work that we've done, and this was really an R&D project, would be the Homestead, which is an art gallery experience. 
um, <clears throat> that we actually started on way back in 2016 and only released, yeah. Yeah, and, and only released in 2019 um, because it was actually a work in progress. So the, the demos, the, the homestead, which looks pretty damn good, is actually just us working things out for three years from start to finish. If we were to redo the homestead now, it would run, you know, 10 times smoother. It would have 10 times more texel density and would be able to do it, you know, literally 100 times faster. So um, it, it's, a, it's a beaten horse, the homestead, but it still looks stunning. Uh, you know, I had Mark from Epic say, if you're doing that in 4.7, man, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, Mark, we're doing that in 4. Um, not 4.17, we're doing that in 4.6. So that's how that's how right. old the homestead is. It really um, goes back quite far. Um, okay, so it so was I'm great. Not... I remember looking at the you go right up close to picture frames and see a tremendous amount of detail up close. Each painting, each painting consists of 1.5 billion points. Each painting is essentially 10 times 8K textures. And so if you right. use the controller on your on your VR, you can actually float around the room and get right into those paintings, like down to the down to the brush strokes. Yeah. Incredible. That's why it's how many, how many, <laughs> right. Yeah. makes sense. <laughs> how, how many pictures did you have to take off the, the painting itself? Um, not many. Um, as I said, the Homestead data set is way back from 2016. Um, we only had two hours in the space. The, the actual environment oh. itself only consists of about 800 photos. Um, okay. using a Nikon D810. Um, the paintings were a little bit different. The paintings are different to the environment. So we actually learned how to make the two sit in the same place. We're actually using two different, essentially two different render engines inside the demo to do, do two different kinds of lighting. Because the paintings are completely delit and cross-polarized. But the environment is what I'd call hybrid lighting. So it's kind of like we've mostly got rid of the specular and mostly got rid of the shadows. Um, but the, the actual environment itself is not fully delit by any extent. It's it's a hybrid delit, which means you're basically just kind of squash quashing it down and removing specular data. And the way we remove specular data is we don't use texture information. We actually use vCol information for it. And vCol by nature removes uh, because you never get two images that have the same specular information in it. And so if you use the vCol data versus the texture data. Um, and this is, you know, this used to be an old thing. I would not tell anyone, but it's it's years ago now, so we don't really care anymore. Um, uh, you actually remove a lot of information, a lot of the information that you don't want, um, like highlights. And so we were able to get a really flat HDR style kind of image from the environment. Um, but the paintings were cross polarized, so we actually did specular um, extrapolation that we then were able to turn into a pretty rudimentary, relatively good roughness variable. So we were able to actually, this was our first attempt way back in 2016 to essentially get PBR information um, using just photography and a bit of, bit of you know, specialized map. Yeah. Interesting. Did, did that become some of the basis of your work in, in DPR? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so DPBR, obviously, that tool is awesome. I, I'm so sorry, guys, that it's not out yet. We we had a running prototype in March, and then we just COVID. That's all I can say. Like, uh, brain drain here in New Zealand. Um, we struggled with, you know, we got the tool working, but we we found it was a massive hurdle to deal with front end, especially with AWS infrastructure. And so when we were scaling up operations to get this into a mainstream tool, 
as you can imagine, being a small island of 5 million and then everyone wanting a friggin' website at the same time because of COVID, um, we got outpriced by the bigger players here in New Zealand, essentially. And so our talent ended up being poached to um, go and work for Datacoms and Deloitte's of the world. So, and we couldn't fly anyone in. So um, we, yeah, uh, but the technology is really sound. And so with DPBR, we essentially use massive amounts of data to train everything from delighting to roughness to normals. Um, AO and cavity is a byproduct of photogrammetry, so that was easy to train. And so, uh, you know, the whole idea of being able to take a single photograph and then extrapolate all those maps automatically and have it contextually aware, uh, it's still a very exciting concept. And well, I, I say concept, we, we had a full blown website, but it's still yeah. something we really feel. Um, the market needs. Um, ironically, it's the new tool we're working on that will probably get this tool into people's hands. So this tool's become kind of almost like a a thing that works with the new tool, the retopology tool. Um, and it's a lot easier for us to do that because we're not having to build a website. We're essentially building the two together as an internal tool again, and just working initially on providing processing of that data um, with the absolute intention of integrating both tools into you know, modern day pipelines around the world. Um, we had a really rough experience with AWS New Zealand. So we're not, um, we, we love AWS, you know, we love AWS and NVIDIA in the States. They've been huge supporters of us, but once again, local talent here has been difficult. So we, um, we're not going to do a front end until we're, we're fully open again and we can fly experts in. And, you know, if, any, if anyone is an expert and wants a holiday in New Zealand for three months, just give us a buzz, um, you know. <laughs> Um, we're definitely yeah, yeah, folks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's ski season in a few months, man. Like, it's gonna be wicked. Like, yeah, uh, just to give the audience in Los Angeles and the rest now an idea of where we're at, we just hit peak like two days ago. So we just hit peak Omicron. We, we've had nothing for two years, pretty much. And in the last six weeks, every Kiwi has gone from, you know, living relatively uh, carefree life uh, to Kind of embracing that in conjunction with everything else going on so it's been a it's been a yeah it's been weird for us it's like hey you guys can finally get out of the country not nah. <laughs> you know <laughs> right yeah so um yeah but no it's cool it's cool uh well welcome to the party yeah <laughs> we're getting through it finally so um you know and we're, we're delighted and i'm looking forward to getting out um yeah can imagine yeah, sorry, anyway. Uh, so, so some of the tools that, that you've worked on through DP and PBR, have, have any of them are directly being used in the new tech? So I imagine some of the delighting yes. stuff must be a big amount of crossover there. Yeah, huge amount. So the situation is this, is the delighting sits way better directly inside the PG software itself, so the photogrammetry software itself. If you're delighting photogrammetry, it's way better to delight at the source of projection. So the only two paths we have right now is essentially treating each and every photograph or treating the, U, um, the, U, uh, the UV data. Now, they both have flaws. The photographs, you're talking about massive amounts of unnecessary processing um, <clears throat> because, you know, each photograph is you know 8k if you're using a d850 or whatever it's huge um but the uv data has its own problems because you have uv islands and you've got to get consistency across those uv islands to reconnect together 
So we are doing a few things here. We're we're just working with UVs for now, uh, but we're with the intention we have full intention to embed it as essentially a a pipe or, or just a processing node that would plug into photogrammetry software. Now I can't really say what platforms would be wanting to integrate this into first, but I think people probably have a pretty good idea. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you know, first and first serve on that one. And uh, we, we, we generally think that's a better way to go because if you can, you know, do the texture projecting within the PG software, you only need to project what you need to process. Um, and that saves a lot of processing, processing time, essentially. Um, and the way that texture projection is actually done within the software um, you, you resolve any issues of seeming or anything like that. You create far better consistency. Uh, for now, we're just literally using, uh, with the new technique, I mean, do you want me to elaborate on that and explain how we're kind of DPBIing on that or would, would that work? If you're, if you're able to obviously go yeah, say yeah, things yeah. that you, you agree, <clears throat> but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we're not focusing on things like the lighting straight away with the retopology um, technique that we're doing. So this is, um, this was really funny. This was actually kind of something I'd been talking about for years. Um, and so I just kind of given it a cheesy name, like deep retopology a few years ago, put it on the website, you know, something I was thinking about. Um, because once again, with photogrammetry data, a bit like texture information, um, you have, you have inconsistencies. Um, and so when you're doing, when you're taking photos, you know, some areas have occlusion, some areas are less dense in resolution because the photograph is taken further back. Uh, and these all cause, you know, these all cause inconsistency issues when you're actually trying to get it, you know, let's say, un, you know, with an Unreal Engine 5 or Unreal Engine 4 or whatever platform of choice. Um, and it, you can, it's not like you can go back and take the photos again in many cases, or it's not like the data says is perfect to begin with. So textual consistency is an issue. Um, but you know, what is a more painful issue, which is what we realized is when we started talking about the retopology component, people actually got far more excited than the texture component, because I think deep PBR was lost on a lot of people. A lot of people didn't kind of understand what its immediate benefit was. Um, but people understand how painful, you know, cleaning up meshes are and so as it currently stands, when you get a mesh of 1 billion, 4 billion, 8 billion, how many points you have, right? Like, how do you deal with that? It, it's massive. The only thing that most people do is get that and then decimate it down to 60 million so they can, they can run it in ZBrush and then do some cleanup, right? So you're going from 4 billion to 60 million as your first step, your first initial step. Now, um, certain photogrammetry software has decimation tools built in. Um, but, uh, and I'm just going to say this right up, and I've been saying this for a few years to these parties, uh, they're not good. They're, they're pretty shitty, to be honest. Um, they create massive inconsistency uh, between chunks of that redecimation. And so in many cases, all they're doing is they're just deleting every number of points uh, within a defined XYZ space. And so when you get your mesh finally into ZBrush or something like that, You've essentially lost all that information that you had from the four billion in many cases. There's, it's not adaptive. It's not doing any adaptive tessellation for one. So all the polygons are relatively spaced out evenly. Um, 
And so when you finally get into something and actually finally start cleaning up, you then have to decimate again using something like uh, Zebra Mesher or Decimation Master. And Decimation Master in itself is really good. But if you're decimating, if you're using decimating Decimation Master at 60 million, what happened to the other 4 billion points that you had spent all that time processing? And yep. so I had hypothesized this for some years, but it was actually only during the summer holidays in between um, raves and festivals and all the rest of it um, that me and, me and uh, one of my devs just kind of hacked away at this for you know um, the last few months. And so what we've worked out is essentially we can get the raw data and decimate it straight down to the desired result we want. Um, and so we've done this with this environment from this artist called Snook, amazing guy. Uh, I've been sitting on this data set for about five months. It's not a great data set in the sense of how it's been done, but that's what makes it good for our case here. Uh, it's, it's extremely variable in its density. Some things are really, really detailed, while other things are, you know, really missing a lot of data. There's a lot of occlusion. There's a lot of foliage. There's um, poor lighting and other things. And so it's a great data set of where you'd have, you know, someone with intermediate photogrammetry capture skills going onto a set and quickly getting a data set that, you know, you want to use later for virtual studio production or VR or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and so we've used this as our benchmark to see how, how great we can get it. And so what we've achieved, and I can honestly say this with huge confidence, um, we're getting this 4 billion data set and we are creating, I'll, I'll say texel, texel consistency, but it's more like poly consistency across the whole entire scene. Um, where there's occlusion, we're synthesizing information hmm. where it gets down to a certain density and the density is just blocky and poor we are synthesizing information from what we have in that density and its surrounding information to fill in missing data with polygons this is not textual textual this is actual polygonal information um, and so <clears throat> what you get is a mesh that is consistent across the whole entire scene but it's consistent but where the polys matter so it you don't have patchiness across areas of low dense or high dense you know we are able to spread 60 million polygons because we still work with 60 million as our benchmark because people still want to go into zbrush or mesh mixer or whatever and do their own artistic um cleanup or removing of things that they don't want sure. to do this but 60 million was a kind of like the highest of the high that we decided to start with here that's the kind of like <laughs> max that you could export as an yeah, FBX exactly. or something like that. Which, yeah, yeah. Well, as an FBX that you run in in your cleanup program of choice. I mean, mesh mix is a favorite of mine. It, it, uh, 40 million is probably more realistic. Most 60 on most systems, you can have a hard time. Um, but the thing is, what you get from that 60 million is really good interpretation. So if I have a blade of grass in a flat concrete scene right well let's actually let's go with something a bit more cooler uh let's say i have a daisy okay in a scene of you know i don't know 10 meters by 10 meters but there's this one daisy that's extremely detailed and it's just a perfectly flat floor it will just focus all the polygons basically onto that daisy okay. so it, it it means that the polygons that you do get from that 60 million are far more worth you know their time you know they are they're what you want they're what you need <clears throat> um 
And so, you know, you've got occlusion filling, you've got, you know, polygon consistency, but you've got adaptive triangulation on what actually matters as well. And it's going from raw data. So the reprojection when you reproject is that much better because like a bit like, um, uh, what's it called? Um, something wrapping, I've just uh, forgotten the shrink wrapping. So it's a bit like the shrink wrapping of the original data to this mesh is far more accurate. Therefore, when you do do the texture projection, it's way better. And then on top of that, we've just added a whole bunch of other things in the script that are basically annoying things that I hate doing manually, like subdivision, uh, like dividing the scene into even chunks, LOD automation. Uh, when you do scene division, for example, that's an issue in itself, especially if you're working with environments, because a lot of people think it's inside out with objects, but in many cases, we're doing outside in, if you know what I mean. So we're inside the object rather than the object being something that's sealed that we're looking at. And so for environments, you know, LOD components need to take that into consideration. Um, yeah. Otherwise, so this will chop up the world into like yeah. 3D tiles, yeah. effectively. But retain the edges so you're not getting weird gapping. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely required for virtual studio production and absolutely required for VR. And so we haven't done much VS, you know, we haven't done much VP ourselves. I mean, we just haven't. You know, we haven't actually done much of anything in the last two years because of our, our locational issue. Um, but what we do know with VR is that you know you need really good optimization, but that carries over really well to virtual production as well. And so the idea is really simple. <clears throat> we will plug PPBR into this for the occlusion, uh, for the super sampling, uh, for areas that we need new normal maps because of occlusion or you know new height maps, roughness. We will eventually get to delighting as well, but delighting, in our opinion, is going to have to require something plugged directly into the texture projection side of it. But for now, we will look into some crude delighting. But essentially, this the retopology stuff is pretty much solved. We will rehash our code from TPBR and plug it into this as well. But at the end of the day, we're talking about someone going out, taking a bunch of photos throwing into capturing reality and do, via, do you know, doing the initial processing, then exporting that into, as a ply, just a single ply file, massive ply file uh, in its raw content form. Uh, chuck it to the system. Within 48 hours, you have your retopology and all that back to you, nice and clean. Throw it back into capturing reality, do your texture projection, throw it back out into the, the second stage of a system that will then do your LODing and chopping. And then it's just a simple matter of exporting into Unreal Engine with your, you know, 100 UDIMs and, you, you know, Bob's uncle. So, yeah, um, where that for the team would take, you know, multiple people a month to actually get done, you know, we, we, we could very well see uh, a situation where we could be from start to finish getting, you know, these star sets done within 48 to 72 hours. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I know that, that uh, the processing of ultra large areas which is somewhat new just processing power and software-wise, some, somewhat new doing that. Yeah, it's, well, it's I mean, very you're, time consuming. you're talking about a few hours of human involvement. Uh, you've got the initial gathering of the data. So, you know, just like any field work, you know, spend a day or two grabbing your scene, taking the photos. But in regards to actually getting that data processed for topology purposes and LOD purposes, uh, all you really are doing is jumping in the middle of the script and is saying, is there anything you want to change to this now that we've got it at 60 million? 
and you can you know you're like yeah whatever uh, and all you're really doing is just bringing it back into CR for texture projection, which we could script in itself, just using CR, you know, capturing reality CRI. Uh, we will look into that. That shouldn't be too hard. But essentially, once you've got the data processed, it, you know, you could go from that to UE4 um, pretty quick. But I don't know if I highlighted this enough. The thing is, what we're getting from this data and topology, as a result of our analytics, we know where the data is bad. So we know where occlusion is, we know where areas are low density versus high density, all that kind of stuff. So we'll be getting that texture data from all the you know, texture islands, the unims and whatnot, and throwing that through and super sampling where it needs super sampling or filling in where it's missing um, and doing all that kind of jazz. So, you know, there's the, the textile component of it as well. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's going to be fast. And it's going to save people a lot of time, essentially. And therefore money, which is great. Yeah, yeah. People care yeah. about that. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and um, you know, everyone knows what I'm like. I'm just going to, any money we get from even beta stages of this, we're just going to throw right back into it. So, you know, we've, we've done a lot of this as a very lean team. Um, you know, so it's, 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 you know, I mean, we're probably, we're probably spent about as much as what people are charging for like two free environments over there of high detail. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like the value add proposition is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Just, just going back to one of those ideas, um, talking about filling in geometry that's not there, basically, you're, you're inventing <clears throat> it in places where it didn't capture or did capture it well enough. Um, yeah. You mentioned the, the texture side of that. I know that sometimes people capturing don't capture the photography as, as well as they possibly could, or just the lighting yeah. wasn't yeah. in their favor that day yeah. so you can end up with just complete black in shadow sometimes is there yeah. um is there a path to making that data up yeah well that's the thing i mean we, we we demonstrated that with dppr years ago we were able to take right. photos of extremely harsh situations of you know the worst kind of situations the situations you'd never even accept um from photography data for photogrammetry or texture creation um you know I mean, I've got years of YouTube stuff showing what we we're getting, and it's it's like magic. I mean, even to this day, I, I, it frustrates me that we haven't been able to, you know, get this in the hands of people sooner. Um, um, I'm because, looking forward to it. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, no, I, mean, I tried it, and I, I know that, you know, as an yeah. artist, a user of things like this too, and going back to trying oh. to use early things to extract a crazy bump and those kinds of things to try and yeah, get yeah. this information out of photography. I was very excited by by your um, steps in this direction because I know how desirable that is personally to be able to get that from, especially when you don't have the luxury of the perfect capture environment where you can you can do a better job of doing that yeah. if you've just got yeah. photograph and you want to get the information out of it, it's very hard. Yeah. Well, the results we're seeing were, and we, we, we can benchmark this because we trained the model. So we, we obviously had AB data, right? So we had, mm. we had the, we had the cross polarized data and we had the original photograph. So we actually know what result we're aiming to get to. Um, and the results we're getting to the ground truth. I mean, I can't really give a percentage as to say, or I can give us a loss function. So, you know, your L1, your L2 losses and training, we're getting to a level, right? And they were getting, you know, I'd say we're 95% of range to ground truth, would be the way I'd put it. So we know that the, the AI was achieving 
you know, results far superior than what any human could artistically interpret. And so when you can do that with delighting, you can also do that with in painting. So we have missing data included. You look at the surrounding areas, it was able to project remarkably well what should be there. So, and the good thing about this is it's not art, it's artistic interpretation, but it's artistic interpretation is is as it's as, as if you got a thousand artists and put them in a bottle and they all had to debate through a democracy of what they think is best. And so what you get is a consistent result across the process as well. So you haven't got 10 or 20 different artists interpreting their own opinion of what that shade of blue should be. You know, everyone, everyone knows it's gold and black. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so as a reference to way back. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's, that's the other good thing about it. And the thing is you can do the same with normal maps, you know, depth extrapolation. So in future, we see a possibility going forward where we actually use our displacement information that we interpret from text, texture data, possibly feedback into the typology data. So we, we could in future genuinely get a photograph of something and create typology out of it using the depth maps. Um, things like that. So there's a whole bunch where we think we can improve over time. Um, but as it currently stands, having those two components packaged into one, you know, processing arm, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be awesome. Um, <clears throat> which kind of falls back onto what I discussed some years ago, um, with DPBR and, you know, encapsulating the world and everyone running around and backing up the planet and all that kind of jazz. And so, you know, the way to actually make this a reality is. At the moment, yes, this is very much a high-end power tool for the studios and virtual production and uh, AAA gaming and all that kind of jazz. But we really do see this trickling down eventually to mass adoption, so everyone can essentially do this um, where the, the price, you know, the price time performance is dramatically lowered, so it can get into the hands of, of I, I hate saying that word, uh, the the the, um, uh, the the metaverse. Oh, go on, say it. Go on. <laughs> I was no. going to say it anyway. I was going oh, to bring it up. I can't I have to bring it up at least once per podcast. Dude, what's my TEDx talk? <laughs> I, I call these things what they fucking are. Sorry, my mic, we, we screw on New Zealand. Um, and it, does, it, it pains me. It frustrates me because it's not, it's, you know, it, it, I don't, it, you know, always, you know, what I, I call artist right, I, I call artist rights management for a digital ledger. They call it NFTs, okay? And I was calling it artist rights management for a digital ledger years ago before any of us hype train kind of jumped in. So, um, so, so yeah. speaking of that, that's a good segue into talking about that thing that you don't like talking about, the meta, meta or the, the other thing, whatever it is, metaverse. Um, and, and artist rights management. I know, I know that there's something you've been really um, interested in and passionate about. Is there something you're also actively working on things the tools for or just something you're really interested in um in honestly if we had more resources we would have been giving this to the world pre-covid like that's my biggest frustration is uh you know i had i'd literally just flown back to new zealand to do this tedx talk about all of this and i was you know really hitting the pinnacle of the career in regards to actually finally scaling up operations of doing digital twins uh by the way, I didn't even use that word back then. I, I refer to it as slices of life, you know, moments in time. Um, and it really does pain me um, 
more, you know, as much as anyone else, um, that we, we're not able to get, you know, multiple locations coming out every week for people to enjoy while they are, you know, essentially in lockdown. Um, and so, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, but we didn't really, it was a perfect storm. So, um, do you think that once, uh, if, as, things are opening back up. I know there's various opinions on whether things are opening back up or not, but yeah, what yeah. say they were, um, would, is that something, I know you're very deep in innovation mode and dev mode at the moment, but yeah, is that something yeah, that you would yeah. lo love to do more of? You know, go, go and uh, capture well, locations I mean, more? Yeah, look, it's all, it's all very personal. Uh, again, that's the crazy thing. Like I've got a lot of friends on the ground right now um, in certain areas um, of the world and uh, certain parties was meant to be in Eastern Europe um, in May. So um, that, as I said, it was like, yay, finally get off the island. And then like, bang, um, you know, after two years of being, you know, we had some of the strictest lockdowns in the world here in New Zealand, you got to realize like we yeah. just got out of a four month one between September and uh, October, oh, July and November. So, um, you know, this idea of actually being able to get on a plane again, even though I hate friggin' flying, I, I absolutely, terrified of it for some reason um but um you know I'll, I'll do it because it's just too much fun um very useful way of but, getting from one land mass to another yeah yeah it's, it's you know give me an airship any day um <laughs> it's not it's my mum came to visit me in la she came over overland all the way from london by boat wow. and train wow. and your, your mum knows how i feel <laughs> yeah. Bizarrely, she flew from San Francisco to LA for the last kind of half an hour, but just to spend an extra day with me, which was nice. But anyway, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, um, so you were saying yeah, that so, uh, yeah, the yeah. pandemic really got in the way of you getting out there into the world and yeah, yeah. But it, it, it was it was a real brain drain. I mean, it was that plus you know you got to realize where you know half my staff went to Weta, you know, and yeah. then Weta went to Unity. Um, and I, you know, usually in the past, I'd, I'd go out there into the world and drum up support and get a few gigs in LA to, you know, make some R&D money. But we basically, you know, we, we basically just ran out of steam. Um, and there was no way in New Zealand, it's just a joke. I mean, the, the, I'm sorry if anyone from New Zealand is watching this, but we have a real broken um, um, uh, VC system here. Um, and it's a real small pot of gold. Um, and there's just no resources in that respect. Um, and people usually will just point to Weta or Datacoms or whatever. And so for some, we don't really have startup culture. I mean, this is what I love about the United States is it's just, it's, it's people really get behind the project here. Everyone's kind of just looking for a government job where they have safety and security over anything else. You've got to realize Auckland next to San Francisco is relatively the same in cost. Um, it is super expensive here um, right. and so everyone's kind of looking for security 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 there isn't that kind of work ethic that i found in the in the states and and and, and parts of europe and other areas where people are really you know excited about the actual concept itself um so risk, it's, risk takers. yeah 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 we're extremely risk averse here and so right. I, you know uh, me personally i'm definitely in the wrong place um but you know, I, I I I love my country and I love my daughter. So uh, it's always been. I, I would have just. That's the trip. I would have jumped over during the pandemic two years ago. But the thing is, we weren't allowed back in the country. You know, but like yeah. 
yeah so it was, it was like i mean we were but we had a lottery system so if my daughter broke her arm or something like that um there's a there's a chance i might not be able to get back in for three months yeah so it just wasn't an option um that's so, been, been pretty uh pretty difficult i know that you guys have had a more significant lockdown um than probably most of the rest of the world yeah um, has there been a side a side to that of for me personally whilst it's been quite challenging in a number of ways we had some uh, not the same but you know so some challenges to businesses and things like that it's, it's been pretty difficult um yeah i mean it's been but also it's been quite in, my, in some ways a focusing time um not being able to do as many things and run around as mm. much um mm. have, have you found any of that um to be the case um well the first lockdown was awesome uh second one wasn't so good um so we had weird stages where we had like very severe ones for like you know four months or so um yeah it, it, it wore thin towards the end i will be honest um so you know we saw the rest of the world kind of opening up back in july yeah. and then we you know we really only got out just before christmas um and then we got omicron which has actually been great because we're just all running around getting omicron it's like we're super vaccinated so you know um you gotta give the government credit where credit is due like it's been remarkable um we are by far the lowest in the oecd in regards to you know um we've had less through this than we'd get in a flu season essentially um right. i think we're one of the few countries where our population uh, age rate has gone up by a few years uh versus the other way around so it, it, it's you know it's but you know it's, it's you pay a price for liberty and all that kind of jazz um so in regards to focus yeah i mean look the last few months have been great um but that's and i can't really discuss this so i can't really say much um we finally did find some breathing space some breathing room in regards to just getting down and doing some development um which has actually allowed us to work on this retopology tool uh which has in a result will be the thing that you know kicks us into um action um i've lost your feed yeah that's okay Should yeah. Be back. yeah um so yeah uh i'd say all of 2021 was kind of like running around showing pitch decks begging for money in the middle of all of us um but towards the end of 2021 we uh we got back on our feet which is good so um it's all up right. and up here so funding wise we're solid uh we've got a number of clients already asking about the retopology tool because they see obviously an immediate value add to it uh and we'll we'll get it out soon and we'll get it from there amazing good times yeah. Yeah. yeah um yeah so with with regards to one of the other things you mentioned as well um obviously a lot of moves going on in the world of virtual production and computer graphics mm, mm, you mentioned mm. the, the unity wetter thing um <laughs> which i think has got the world's attention uh, with, but with you, very, very you little. Got world's attention you have no idea what i went through in that process it was not fun <laughs> I don't know what I can and cannot say, but talking about being a kid in a custody battle. Yeah. Well, don't say anything you shouldn't. Yeah. Nah. Well, I'm not signed to not say anything. But yeah. I but, think um, it's, it, it's conceptually, anyway, it's an interesting uh, yeah. moment because whilst yeah. I, I made movies in Unity and then at the, you know, the end of The Lion King was when really Unreal got yeah. uh, very, very interested in, in filmmaking and, and and implemented all of these tools um and became and, and pushed ahead and you know, yeah. real has been really the, 
the flavor um you know, we we teach it in our school and it's definitely got the world's uh, it's, it's the world's preference at the moment for filmmaking virtual production but there is um and you know hopefully this is a, a, a lot of uh, things being done by Unity, so I think competition is, is healthy and having other people involved is, is a good thing. Um, having having used both, I've got my own opinions on, on and tools from other people, things like Unity and Unreal. Do you, do you have, uh, are you looking at both? Uh, do you have a preference? Or? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the measures that reach Bology tool and the texture, um, you know, enhancement methodologies work on both platforms. I mean, um, I think most parties are going to UDEM these days, you know, because it's just easy to work with and such great packages from the foundry like Mari and stuff like that, you know, really good tools for dealing with massive amounts of texture data. Um, yeah. it, we're, we're agnostic in that, in that sense. Um, yeah. You know, but we would definitely, I mean, like, I mean, obviously, you, you know, I mean, I obviously have my preferences um you know i mean I've, I've known teddy from quicksil for ages lovely guy good friend um i've known you know the guys at epic forever um you know back in the good old days when i was just a small company of a few hundred million <laughs> so, um, yeah um uh, i i did actually my first works were put out on unity way back uh we did the first vr six off music video using both rgbd volumetrics and photogrammetry way back in 2015 for a New Zealand artist called Maya Payne. And that was done in Unity. So I, I, I wasn't even using Unreal at that time. Um, but uh, I kind of, I'm, I'm not a programmer. Uh, I struggle with English alone. <laughs> so any kind of thing involving syntax is, is hard for me. I'm more visual. So I found Unreal Engine easier to work with because I was far more familiar. You know, I, I, I could conceptualize nodes better than I could conceptualize C sharp. So um, it just it was so it's a little easier to get, get yeah, moving yeah. and get things rolling with blueprints as yeah. opposed to yeah. having to code. Blueprints and prototyping because you got to realize I had no background in this. You know, I was playing drums and singing in a band prior to all of this. And so, you know, I, I was kind of aiming for whatever way I could find a way to express myself in the easiest possible way. And um, I think it was UE 4.6 is when I started. And um, that's kind of, it's just, it was easy for me to do. Um, and then I just got to know all the guys. So I, I mean, if it wasn't for Epic, I mean, look, you gotta understand, I'd never been on a plane in my life in, in 2016, I'd, I'd never flown. And never flown? Wow. No, no, I mean, so just, you can imagine my situation to go from like, go from zero to 35 years old to never being on a plane, flying about 120 times in two and a half years, then coming back to New Zealand just to do your TEDx tour, to then get stuck for another two and a half years. <laughs> so it's been a real like, <laughs> um, So yeah, I mean, yeah. So, you know, literally if it wasn't for Epic originally, um, Dana and others originally just being like, hey, this shit's really cool. And this is 2016. Hey, do you want to, you know, get out of your bedroom in Auckland, New Zealand and see the world essentially? And if it wasn't for Epic giving me that initial chance because I couldn't get it here, no one here really could grasp what the hell I was even doing. Um, and they really just threw in and that allowed me to actually get out into the world. And as a result, 
you know, meet the guys at Curiosity Stream and start on Nefertari and all that kind of stuff. And from that point, it, it really just, you know, you know, I mean, my last thing was in the Large Hydrogen Collider, you know, like literally before flying back to New Zealand, I was 100 meters underground rolling around in radiation. So, you know, you it was, it? yeah, yeah. We'll see what oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, once again, great retopology. I, I haven't touched it because the retopology process of it is just ridiculous. Um, and, you know, it would, it would right. cost too much to process the data. So this is where the retopology component comes in. If we can actually automate it, then, you know, all this plus many other environments, we can start pumping out, you know, two guys, just two people could casually be pumping out a new environment a week on Steam um, right. with ease, essentially, you know, and, but the biggest problem is for us, especially in the last few years, is actually been, you know, trying to obtain the initial photogrammetry data in the first place. People are very precious about their data, yeah. uh, which yeah. makes perfect sense. And I completely understand the logic behind it, but I do think certain, uh, certain things like culturally significant sites and things like that really need to get way more into the public domain. Um, we obviously, I don't know how public it is out there, but, you know, we obviously were dancing with Facebook research for a while, uh, and we found the same problem with any of these bigger entities. And look, we have to, we have to make this a crowdsourced solution essentially. And that's where I think it really will make sense. You know, just having, as I refer to artist rights management for a digital ledger, each and every person with a camera is just running around taking photographs of these sites they get to log what they feel is or is not suitable for the use case of that photograph um and any kind of licensing through virtual production is essentially the licensing then goes back to the individual who actually took the initial photographs and so right. this is where we see this being extremely powerful for virtual production is the ability to crowdsource locations you need rather than having to fly there half the time and actually it's a it's a win-win for everyone the artist you know the artist, as a musician myself who never got paid my afro checks for my radio play it pisses me off right so you know you've got someone in the trenches here fighting for you when i when i refer to the artists so the people who are actually out there on the field taking the photographs you know uh that, that they're very rarely seeing their fair shake you know their fair share um and so if you can take out the middleman, which is essentially the whole, the, the, the most expensive part of the component, which is the processing and, you know, pushing pixels, as I say, you know, you really solve this problem because it just goes straight from artists to licensing. And um, there's fair good money in licensing. I mean, you save the studios save money, the artists make money. Um, I won't lie, middle, I guess, you know, we, we kind of become a middle person in some respects. You know, we, we do make revenue essentially from processing of data, um, but compared to what it would cost to do it manually with a team of, you know, artists in the basement, it's, 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 it's considerably, it would be considerably cheaper over time. Yeah. Right. So it's making it available to individuals and small teams. Yeah. 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 We, 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 we got, we got a Tesla it because we, you know, I, I mean, I, I never want to experience the level of how do I say stress that I went through in late 2021? Um, you know, I, I'm not kidding when I say September, October, November, I could not pay my rent. <laughs> and I'm not going back to that. So I, I, I need to keep it my 75K a year and I'm happy. 
there's there's a there's a there's a paper there's multiple papers that show once you hit above 75k um happiness threshold versus monetary gain uh levels out and you know that's just that's just a fact so you know for me it's just um uh we we really went through tough times in 21. um you know i had to let go of 11 staff in early 2021 um and it, it was difficult so um we we do need to find some kind of revenue model for reality virtual um but it's compared you know what we require versus you know i mean people are paying probably as i said the amount of development costs we put into this is probably what you'd be paying to get an environment done professionally maybe three times over so it's it's just it's ridiculous if you think about how much money is spent on producing these environments versus what our actual development costs were it's 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 nuts so we, we don't see it as being a, a hurdle in, in any way yeah right yeah, yeah. What, are, what are some of your favorite um uses of making digital twins if you would like to call uh, them that or slices of, of, slices uh, of life. reality slices um, of life. well it's I, I don't know yeah look um i mean for me personally like i discussed at some length um a few years ago look uh we were we were really trying to get in and show the cost of war uh with aleppo about four years ago when i was working with nepatari and so we're you know we would i was discussing quite a lot you know no one would go to war if you were to put them in vr and actually show them you know the cost of war and so uh obviously with recent events taking place that's a kind of a humanitarian i guess you'd say like i've always wanted to position ourselves far more as like some kind of uh public service or ngo um where we because you know you're the, you're the, you're detached um when you're watching it through a television and all that kind of stuff um i don't want to traumatize people that's the last thing i want to do but you know we don't really take it seriously you know the hardships are, are going on right now like i've got many friends in ukraine right now and it's, it's breaking my freaking heart like last few weeks was a bit of a, a bit wobbly for me in, in all honesty because of just the stress of it all and um you know the em empathy that you get when you you know when you've got good people you know like the um, you got to realize, you know, in Eastern Europe, I mean, the, the photogrammetry and the tech scene in general, like the devs, everyone, like they're just amazing, amazing, yeah. talented people. I mean, the photogrammetry scene in particular is very strong in that region. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so my personal thing, my most immediate urge is I wish we'd got this out weeks ago so we could just be pumping these experiences out um, to really, to really demonstrate, you know, the actual cost of war. Um, no, that's that's the, the sad reality of now. Um, the better reality is really obviously, you know, um, everything from just being able to get out of your room and see experiences, see places like we envision in a, you know, we envision just back to back experiences of high quality locations of cultural significance around the world. I mean, I've seen the demos that are on Steam right now and they they are nothing to the quality that we know we can deliver in regards to digital twins of multiple locations. And and with streaming, it's not so much a file size issue anymore. So there's nothing really stopping you from putting on a headset and jumping to hundreds of locations 
essentially in real time streamed on delivery through good texture and polygonal streaming um and and it being really as good as you know as close to as reality as the hardware allows us right now um which i think i've demonstrated is actually pretty damn close in regards to visual quality um that to me is awesome and and that to me is a is, is going to do a lot of good for people uh generally speaking mental health you know like really delivering uh people a bit of um escapism in a good way but i genuinely do believe this i i refer to the experiences being trailers to the movie um yeah. so this idea that you'll go and explore these places in vr quite frankly in my opinion once we truly do reopen up will actually allow people to really want to go there in person um and as i've always said over the years as someone who had been isolated for 35 years of my life and not got out into the world you know, I had my own biases and I was stuck on my own kind of belief concepts of what certain cultures and certain places were like. Like, And, you know, I, I don't mean to overhash this line, but, you know, good luck finding a well-traveled bigot, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. There's so, something about travel that really encourages acceptance yeah. and, and understanding between different, different cultures, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't well, send any messages, but I cannot see my phone from here. Um, so <laughs> it's popped up in the corner. Uh, it's all good. Well, I, I think we're uh, we're at the hour, so I, I, okay. I uh, wanted to thank you very much for coming in. I've got many more questions that I could ask you, but um, this has been a really fascinating conversation for me. Thank you for sharing your experience in, in a very personal journey and a very uh, very interesting story and in how your your innovations have come about and a very personal uh, story behind almost every one of them so it's been really really interesting and thank you for being for, uh, for sharing all of that oh, no, i really okay. appreciate it yeah i always i always walk away after all of us feeling like i need a strong whiskey that's quite okay <laughs> <laughs> that's like, yeah, what, it's, it's, nine it's, in the morning in new zealand no no i'm joking i'm joking it's just it's not, it's not, <laughs> I'm it's not, judge. i i know it's not the status quo and so yeah it's it's um you know, I know most parties kind of came into this classically trained. Um, no, for, for me, it's personally, yeah, it's been a journey, I guess. So yeah. <laughs> hopefully more so. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. And yeah, thank you for also to all of our listeners watching live today and also uh, catching this on, on the podcast. Um, if you enjoyed what you saw today, we'll be back again in, in two weeks with another great guest. Um, check us out at becomecgpro.com if you're interested in our school. Um, we have a Facebook community, uh, Facebook Become CG Pro. Um, and yeah, just look forward to uh, our next conversation. Simon, thank you. Awesome. Thank you very thank much. You. Again. It's been a lot. Thank you, mate. Oh, 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 oh,